This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the last chapter, Genesis 50. Genesis 50. If you're looking at a Bible on the side uh, shelves, it's on page 41. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one and you'll be helped as we go through to follow along as we'll look at this chapter uh, in its entirety this morning. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word before you as we do that. And so let's pray before we look to God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in a posture to hear from you. And Lord, we want to have submitted hearts to your word. We pray that you would give open eyes and ears to receive it. And Lord, we pray that you would meet with us. Lord, we desperately need to see a picture of your loving sovereignty as we deal with uh, unknown and pain every day on a, in, a, in a spectrum of, of physical loss and emotional, relational loss. And Lord, we just pray that you administer now by your Spirit through your Word in ways that I could never even ask or imagine to your people. Oh Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Help us to trust in your love for us in Christ. The acceptance that you provide in Him. To know and believe verses like Romans 8.28 and the verse before us here in Genesis 50 that you are sovereign and good. So we ask for your help now. We love you. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you need perspective sometime, I would encourage you just to take a walk in a cemetery. Uh, I've done that some. You may think that's a little strange. Maybe it is. Uh, but it is certainly a humbling experience to be reminded of the brevity of life. Especially if you're on the younger side of things. Uh, we tend not to, to, to think about death a whole lot. And so a walk through a cemetery reminds us that this is where, apart from Jesus' return in our lifetimes, we are all in this room heading. This is not really the pep talk maybe you were looking for this morning at the beginning of the sermon. I would go and I would, I would sometimes look at where my dad is, is buried and look around at the, the tombstones and read the, the messages. And it's not fair to summarize someone's life by those little short messages. I, I agree with that. But you can get a sense for, for who, they, who they were. Um, I read this week of, a, of Sir Winston Churchill's tombstone, and it reads this. It says, I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Uh, since we're coming off an election, I thought of Bill Kugel's epitaph, which was interesting. He was a longtime Democrat in the Texas House of Representatives, and it reads, quote, he never voted for Republicans and had little to do with them. That's on his tombstone. So, so the finality of death forces some to humor, 
some to distraction or even denial. But we know that no matter how we deal with death, death will deal with us. There are skeptics, and I had one very close one in my family, who would say that really the reason you're a Christian is because you don't want to deal with death. And so you need a crutch to help you feel better about death. Now certainly there have been those that have run to religion, even Christianity, out of a, a, to assuage a fear of death, or particularly what comes after death, for fire insurance, as they say. But I would challenge you to think about what the Bible actually teaches before you just draw conclusions from mere experience. The Bible does more than simply offer comfort in death, although I, I welcome that comfort. Death is a very um, unnatural interruption into life. It's something that we're used to. It's in the periphery of our lives all the time. But it is this regular reminder that something is wrong. Something is wrong with this world. But the Bible tells us that and it helps us understand the reason for death. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is a comprehensive book about life. And as a church, we've been studying this first book of the Bible. And, and we know even from the beginning where life comes from and where death comes from. And so we see life at creation, the creation of all things, the creation of man. And in Genesis 3, we have this promise that comes along with, from God to, to, to Adam and Eve with a command. Do not eat of this tree or you shall surely die. And from Genesis 3 on, we see this death spread through murder, mass killings, uh, destruction through God's judgment in the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, and even old and sometimes very old age. Everyone died and everyone dies. Genesis 1, Genesis 1 begins with the creation of life. And notice where Genesis ends. Look at Genesis 50, verse 26, the last verse so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It begins with life, and it ends in a coffin. The wages of sin are death. But Genesis 50 is not the end. In fact, if you're looking at the last verse there in Genesis 50, all you have to do is look over to the next page to a book entitled Exodus, which means something like exit, or departure, or out of. And so, so Genesis 50 is, is dominated by death, but it's a death that is looking forward to a resurrection. Even that word for coffin is the word used in earlier in Genesis to describe the ark. Christians do speak of death much differently. Martin Luther said this, What is our death but a night's sleep? For as through sleep all weariness and faintness pass away and cease, and the powers of the Spirit come back again, so that in the morning we arise fresh and strong and joyous. So at the last day we shall rise again, as if we had only slept a night, and shall be fresh and strong. Friends, that is what we believe. That is what the Bible teaches. We've said that unlike paganism, that sees life as a never-ending circle of meaningless repetition, the Bible story in the Christian life is shaped more like the letter J 
where it begins with life, and then there's death, sin and suffering, and resurrection. And our life is full of that tension and many contrasts, but it is constantly infused and activated by hope. And this morning, as we look at Genesis 50, I want to mention three contrasts, three tensions that we see in this passage and that we see in life um, that are going to help us as we go through the text. And they'll be um, there on your screen, as you, you can see. Number one, burial and resurrection, as we look at the burial of the last patriarch, Jacob. Secondly, evil and good. Joseph's last um, recorded interaction with his brothers. And then finally, death and hope as Moses records Joseph's last words and his own death. But here's the main point this morning. Darkness and death, although real, have an expiration date. Christ rose from the grave and is coming Again, to make all things new. And we see that tension, that beautiful reality and hope, even in this Old Testament book of Genesis. So let's look at that first contrast together, burial and resurrection. Thank you, Tim, for reading this passage for us. And I just want to start out by pointing out the shape, really, of the whole chapter which helps us, I think, understand the importance of this first section. You might be surprised, or maybe not, to, to know that this first section is shaped like a chiasm. We've seen many of those as we've gone through Genesis, this, this, this poetic way that Moses is using to, to highlight a section that looks like kind of a half of an X or a greater than sign when you draw it out. But you'll see it here uh, on the screen. We have a, a picture of it, the way this text is shaped. It begins with the death and embalming of Jacob, Uh, that is really matched what we'll see later down in verse 16, uh, or or rather verse 26, by Joseph's death and embalming. And then that kind of makes out the outer edges. And then the inner pieces are these conversations between Joseph and Pharaoh's house. He doesn't speak directly to Pharaoh. And then the brothers sending a message to Joseph. They don't speak directly to Joseph either. And then right there in the middle is this state funeral procession of the patriarch, Jacob, in verses 7 to 14. And that really is the, the highlight of this chapter. And that, that may not be what you think as you're, as you're looking at it. But remember, Moses is writing to a people, the people of Israel, sometime after the Exodus has taken place, as they're wandering in the wilderness, preparing um, to enter into the Promised Land. And so, so he is revealing to them these grand purposes in their redemption that look forward to ultimate redemption. And so we won't read that whole section again. I'll just point out a few things to note. Look at verse 2 of chapter 50. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, the mummification process in Egypt uh, was an elaborate one. It was filled with all kind of religious overtones and meanings. But the process was basically to prepare this this corpse for his eternal journey into the next world, into the afterlife. Now, the Israelites didn't do this. They didn't embalm, but took great care with the deceased in preparation and hopes for the resurrection. But here, Jacob is likely being embalmed to preserve his body for the journey to, to Canaan for burial. Now, usually this embalming process was done, since it's this religious act, by temple priests. 
But, but notice here, Joseph commands the physicians. And so that would be a change from the norm, not the priest, to embalm his father. I think that's a way of saying we're, we're not doing what you think we're doing. We have something else that we're looking forward to. And I think there's that subtle hint that something else is coming. And, and that word for physician is also really just the word for healer. Why bring in healers, a physician, doctor, to a corpse? Well, I think Joseph is saying, Moses is saying, that corpse is going somewhere. Listen to Moses' words again. So the physicians embalmed Israel. He, he could have said Jacob, but here he uses that, that name that God had given him, Israel. And it almost is, if you, if you were just to pick up and read that, it almost seems like the entire nation is now dead, is now, is now being wrapped um, in this mummification attire. It's as if they have gone down into the unclean place, which is often uh, we refer to as Sheol, the place of the dead. And they are now, as a nation, dead. But Israel is about to come up out of Egypt to the promised land. You might say be raised from the dead. And so after days of weeping are finished, we read that Joseph is speaking to Pharaoh's household again not himself and there's probably political reasons for that it's probably offensive to say I really don't want to be buried here with all of your wonderful uh, you know tombs and and all the elaborate things of of Egypt I want my father to be buried in this cave over in in Canaan but he speaks to he's he's got some tact here speaks to the household and asks for um, burial there so you have an Israelite deliverer speaking to a pharaoh in Egypt asking to leave and go to the promised land What we see in this passage is over and over just kind of like a a dress rehearsal for the exodus in Egypt. But it's like kind of with counter action. So what happens here happens differently in the exodus. And so notice in verse 6, this Pharaoh says, go, go on up. Unlike the next Pharaoh that we'll see in the next book, who repeatedly says, no, you may not go up. That Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. So so verse 7 so, so Joseph is going to go, he's going to lead his family. And that verse, uh, verse 7 shows really the grandest state funeral anywhere in the Bible. It's not just Joseph and his brothers, but Pharaoh's top leaders and servants. And we know the, the SV often translate that word servant. It's just the word slave. So read it that way. It sounds like all the slaves of Pharaoh went up to Egypt. Friends, that is an exact description of the Exodus. The people of Israel, enslaved, set free and gone out of Egypt to the promised land. Pharaoh sends his horses and chariots with them. That sounds familiar as well. Only their children and flocks and herds are left in Goshen. If you remember, there's a point in the Exodus account where Pharaoh says, you can go, but just leave your children and your flocks and your herds behind. And Moses says, no, we all go or none of us go because we're not coming back. And so this great company leaves and goes in this great march to, to, to Canaan. And they stop at the threshing floor of Atad. And that is beyond the Jordan. Which means they are taking the same route. Kind of around the bottom of the Dead Sea. This long circuitous journey that the Israelites would take in the Exodus. The only difference is it would take them just a little bit longer. But same route. And who do they meet? The Canaanites. And the Canaanites come in and, and see this great mourning and they name the place Abel Mizraim, which means something like mourning of Egypt. But, but that 
kind of looks forward to the conquest of the, 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 the land that we see later with Joshua. And so they, they, you see all these pictures of, of death but life looking to the Exodus. And so they finally come to this cave, the cave of Machpelah. And they lay Jacob to rest there with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah in the promised land. This little piece of land, this funeral plot that they have purchased, trusting in God who's promised them to have, to have that land one day. That it would all be theirs. But it's not theirs yet. It was already promised, but not yet realized. Notice that Joseph and the brothers, they bury Jacob and then they turn their backs on the promised land and go back to Egypt. None of them would ever see the promised land again. That's the tension. Death and resurrection. Joseph and his brothers lay their father to rest and turn their backs on the land that is not yet theirs. It has been promised to them. But we know it promised in Genesis 15 until the iniquity of the, of the Amorites is complete. So it's not God's timing yet. None of them would enter. How do, you, how do you do that? It's by walking by faith and not by sight. Even the way Jacob's death is described back in chapter 49 as being gathered to his people suggests that there is a people who are there, who are waiting, looking forward to something to come. Beloved, that's the, the call from these verses is to look to what God is, is, is bringing to us. Hoping in God's promise to, to conquer and turn back death. That when we die, we go to a better country. And that God will raise the dead. That there is grief and sorrow in this life, but joy comes in the morning. This is Paul's point to the Thessalonians, isn't it? In chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. When someone describes death as sleep, you know they are looking for another time when they're going to wake up. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. And he goes on to describe the way the dead in Christ will rise when Christ returns. So Jacob's burial is a foreshadowing of God's rescue of Jacob's people. He dies in hope. I would encourage you to pray that hope for the Bishop family this week. As they, as they consider these, these promises and apply them at the loss of, of Gary. Many of you are, are still mourning and, and mourning other losses in your life. Death and darkness may be looming right now. And here I think we find parallels with the patriarchs, don't we? The author of Hebrews says, and he kind of summarizes the way that this group kind of functioned in Hebrews 11. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, you talk like this, you live like this, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So, beloved, lift your eyes to the city that has foundations. There is a better country. God has prepared a place for us. This world is not our home. We will grieve. 
but not as those who have no hope, as those who are seeking a homeland. That's the first tension that we see here in Genesis 50. Secondly, we see the tension in life between evil and good. That's number two, evil and good. And so Jacob is buried, and now the scene shifts back to Egypt as Joseph's brothers come back, and they are, it seems, immediately struck with fear. What if Joseph was just tolerating us while Jacob was alive to appease our father, and now that he's dead, what's going to happen to us? This is an opportunity for him to actually get the revenge he's always been wanting to get. That's kind of the way that they're thinking. So pick it up in Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Now, notice, like Joseph going to Pharaoh's house, in his household, the brothers don't come to Joseph face-to-face, they send a message, so think they're, they're texting him instead of going face-to-face. They don't want to face him. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid and unsure of their status with Joseph. And, and the question is, should they be? After Judah's offer, if you remember, to sacrifice himself for Benjamin, Joseph broke down and he brought his brothers near to him, In chapter 45, he comforted them with God's sovereignty. He provided for them. He gave them a place in Egypt. He saved them from the famine. And they are still afraid and unsure. Now, perhaps they have not plainly asked forgiveness, plainly confessed. It's kind of been implied maybe at this point. And their guilt is is pressing in on them. It seems to me that Joseph is clearly forgiven them already, the way that he's treated them. This is the message that they pass on. Pick it up again in verse 16. They send a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, we have no record of Jacob actually telling them this. Could this be fictional? Could they just be motivated by fear and make this up? Yes, it could be. We don't know that. But we do know that, that, that instead of focusing on what Jacob wanted, Joseph actually focuses on their fear in his response. I think that's their main motivation. They clearly now admit that they have transgressed. They've sinned against Joseph and did done evil to him in, in betraying him and throwing him in the pit and selling him off to slavery. And so we can assume that when Joseph reads the message, he comes to them face to face because we read there at the end of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. There's multiple places in the Joseph narrative where we find him overcome with emotion and weeping. 
But they all have one common theme. He never weeps for himself. He's always weeping for others. His father, his brothers, the the broken relationships that have happened there. And we don't know all what's going on now in his weeping. Is he still overcome with emotion from his father? Is he flooded with emotion as he thinks back on these memories as they come to him again and bring this up? But perhaps he is weeping here because after 17 years of being with his brothers and, and caring for them, they have still not come to grips with his love. They still misunderstand his goodness and are suspicious of his grace. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you ever struggle like that. If you ever doubt that God would actually forgive someone like you, truly, finally. Even if you still sin. Do you struggle with the assurance that God has indeed forgiven you? That He actually loves you and will love you forever? I think Joseph wants his brothers to be secure in his love and in his forgiveness of them. And he comes to them in tears. And notice what his brothers do in verse 18. We've seen this before. His brothers also came and fell down before him, another fulfillment of the dreams in in Genesis 37, and said, Behold, we are your servants. Or slaves. They they have a hard time with the grace part. And so how about we pay you back for what you've done. What we've done to you. We made you a slave. Now we'll be your slave. That that makes a lot more sense to us, doesn't it? I'm going to pay God back somehow for all the things that I've done wrong. And then it probably would make sense for me to be forgiven. We're a lot more comfortable with works than we are with sheer grace. Joseph says to them, uh, verse 19, this is really, really significant. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He locates the problem, fear. I love that we sang earlier, I love that casts out fear. He's loving them in a way that should take away their fear. He addresses it. Do not fear. It is not, I am not in God's place. I am not in the place of someone to enact vengeance or revenge. I'm not the ultimate judge. And and we think of passages like Romans 12, 19, and, and, and we hear words like, never, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Am I in the place of God? We started today thinking about connections from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Here's another one. Do you remember the hook that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? If you eat of this tree, you won't die. And when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam went for that 
I want to be like God. I want to replace God. And he fell. Joseph, however, says no. I'm not in the place of God. It's only God that is sovereign over all. Life and death, sin and judgment, forgiveness and restoration, good and evil. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see how Joseph's words are like a counter to Adam's? They're paving a way for a better Adam who would also have to face evil head on to keep many alive. That phrase is used in the flood narrative. Uh, It's used here with Joseph and it points to the, the final deliverance that will come to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save us. He was rejected, despised, killed, and God meant it for good. And He rose from the grave. And He purchased a great host, a great company to come with Him. So friend, when you doubt the love of God, His forgiveness of your sins, God's acceptance of you as a son or daughter, look to be reminded of the cross. Look to Calvary. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. What about our sin? What about God's judgment? The Bible says it's forever and finally dealt with on the cross. Then what's my status before God? Child of God, fellow heir with Christ, forgiven, accepted, made new, resurrected to newness of life that will be revealed fully when He returns. The God who turned the most evil event in history around for the salvation of His people is your God today. He is your God right now, working all things together for your good. Do you believe that? The New Testament authors looked at passages like this to build a theology of affliction and suffering. Verses like 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, sovereign, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Trust the Lord that He is working all things together, even our suffering and pain for good. If you believe that, if that's the way you see life, it makes you into a very different kind of human being. You will lead a very different life. A life that looks like verse 21. Look there. So Joseph still says to them, Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He he comforts them. He turns away their fears. He provides for them and for their families. He speaks kindly to them. Friends, this is literally the exact opposite of the way the brothers treated him. They hated him so much in Genesis 37. It says they couldn't even speak to him peaceably. Now he speaks kindly to, 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 to him, to them. They took everything away from him. They tried to kill him. They sold him for profit. And now when he has all the authority and opportunity to crush them, he loves them. Friends, this is the gospel. 
Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He provides for you. He invites you to come. He speaks kindly to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, go and love others the way that you have been loved. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We're not in the place of God. God has been merciful. Jesus has saved sinners. We follow Jesus. And living like this is not normal. It's not common, but it is Christianity. It is what we've all signed up for, those of us who are professing believers. What a gospel. What a gospel. What a Savior that overcomes evil with good. Who, while we were yet sinners, yet enemies, he died for us. And now he says, Go and do likewise. Let's look at the last tension here that we see in this last section of the last chapter of Genesis. Number three, death and hope. Death and hope. We finish on this note of death that Moses records Joseph's last days, uh, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived, he lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. Interestingly, 110 years old is an ideal age in Egypt in, in Joseph's day. So not only does he live to a good old age, but he gets to, to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it seems, from Ephraim and Manasseh. And like Jacob before him, he adopts some of them as his own. I think there's a lot going on here in Joseph's life. And I think as we've seen his life unfold, we've seen the connections, of course, with Jesus and the way that the, 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 even the New Testament authors see that, and some of the Old Testament authors as well. So if you, as we think about Isaiah 53, for example, our minds are kind of directed to the suffering servant who bore our sins, Jesus Christ. Many scholars look at that passage and see many connections in, in, in Isaiah's writing to Joseph's life and as, as kind of a blueprint for the suffering servant to come. So Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here, Joseph, who is that suffering 
servant who's brought many to life sees his offspring. But he also comes face to face with his own death. In these last verses, he instructs his brothers by faith about what to do with his own remains. So pick it up in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I want to talk like this when I die. I want to be able to stare death in the face and speak hope like Joseph does here. God will surely visit you. God is coming. This is not over. He's going to bring you up out of this land. And when he does, come and get my bones and take me with you. I want to go to the, to the land too. God's land. This land is not my home. I'm banking on the promises of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm not going to get to see them in this life with my eyes, but that makes them no less true. And the author of Hebrews highlights this moment for Joseph as 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 a sign of his faith. Hebrews 11, 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. He's prophesying about the exodus. And if you just keep reading a few pages, you're going to see that God does visit his people. Another Pharaoh comes up that doesn't know Joseph. Instead of blessing God's people, he curses them, and then he receives the curse of God. He receives the plagues of God. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This Pharaoh understands those cursings. And God sends another deliverer. He works in the heart of this man Moses to come and confront Pharaoh. And God displays his supremacy over Egypt and every ruler by calling this dead people out to life. By setting this enslaved free. And when they are freed, we read in Exodus 13, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then they come out of Egypt, and when they go into the promised land, we pick it up with another leader, Joshua, who also lived to be 110 years old. And we read this in Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, when the people of Israel brought up, were brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the place of the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Why would Joseph care so much about where his bones are? Unless he thought that one day he was going to be standing on the ground that God had promised him, that he would be raised from the dead. If Jacob's burial looks ahead to the exodus, then Joseph's burial looks ahead to the new exodus in the the final conquest, the fulfillment of those promises of land and seed and blessing realized in Christ Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth. So friends, we are further along now 
than Jacob and Joseph and Moses. We have seen the fulfillment. We have seen the better Adam. We, we sung that song just this morning. The better Joseph, the better Moses, the true deliverer who has come to die to save us. But we find ourselves again waiting. Again faced with death and darkness. It's been conquered, but it's not yet vanquished. We lay our friends and our loved ones to rest. But this death and darkness has an expiration date. We've looked at those promises from the first book of the Bible. Let me just read one from the last book. The last sentence, in fact. And this comes from Jesus Christ Himself. Revelation 22, verse 20 and following. Jesus says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these years that we've been able to spend in this book together as a church. Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit. There would be fruit from that time by your Spirit as your Word works in our hearts. Thank you for how rich and wonderful your Word is. That it edifies us and points us to you. It comforts us, instructs us, rebukes us. Lord, I just thank you for these people that gather here week in and week out to listen, to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build your church for your glory. We pray that we would continue to trust you, Lord, in every circumstance. That we would lift high the name of Jesus, our Savior and King. And Lord, we await your coming. We pray it would be soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.